You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks, as always. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you're back. I'm back. I'm back. You are recently returned from Australia, where you went to take in UFC 243. Regale us with some tales of your travels. You know, Melbourne is a lovely city. I did not know that. I also did not realize that Melbourne at least thinks of itself and other people think of it as kind of the arts and fashion capital of Australia. Okay. Uh, known for having a lot of good coffee shops and bars and restaurants. So I could just wander around and pretty much everywhere I stopped in was an awesome place to eat or have a cup of coffee or have a beer or something. I had a really good time. Uh, not... Not so much on the plane ride there and back, though. That is a long, long time to be in an airplane. Yeah. What is it, 15 hours? It's like 16 hours there from LAX and then 14 hours back. And then, of course, when you live in Missoula, Montana, you got to take a number of smaller and smaller planes just to get back here. It's not a simple business at all. So I still feel a little bit jet-lagged after all that, but got to watch... An MMA event in a giant-ass stadium, in Marvel Stadium there in Melbourne, and uh, got to hang out with a lot of fun Australian people, so that was cool. Uh, UFC attendance record, I believe, correct? So they say. So they say. They, they were claiming 57,000. 57,214 or something like that. I mean, again, feels like kind of taking their word for it on that, but I could say there was a lot of people there. Although, some of those people... The seats up there in the upper deck, and John Anna kept mentioning it all week, as low as $45 gets you in the door. And that's like like 30 bucks American, which, as you know, from for UFC price tiers, it never gets that low. Yeah. And when I got there and I had a look, I could see why. Because those people must have just been there for ambiance, man. They were way, way out there. There's, you're, you're watching it on the screen, and you might even need binoculars to see the screen. It's, it was not exactly the best look at the action. You're there, I guess, just to hang out with your fellow fans and yell some shit. Yeah, and you could do a lot worse. You could. On a Sunday morning, a Sunday afternoon. Did it feel weird to like cover a UFC event, watch a bunch of fights, watch a momentous fight? in the case of the main event and then walk outside into the bright sunlight of the day and be like, well, now what? Now I guess I'll go grab dinner or something. That part was awesome. I could get into that part. Well, maybe we should think about doing that over here. 9.30 a.m. for the first fight. After all the fights and the press conference and everything, I walked out of that arena at like 5.45 p.m. Caught a cab back to my hotel, had, had dinner, Got to sit down and actually write something and just like take my time and not write it bleary-eyed in the middle of the night. Yeah. Knowing I got a plane to catch in a few hours. Get a full night's sleep. I I could get into that aspect of it, to be honest. I wonder what the other citizens of Melbourne thought about 57,000 drunk Australian fight fans being unleashed, coming out of the gates of the uh, Marvel Stadium 
you know, about supper time. Well, the Marvel Stadium saw them coming a little bit in that regard because they sold the not full strength alcohol beers. Oh, okay. Yeah, pulled that old move, which people were still drinking them. Don't don't think for a second that people were like, oh, I'm not going to waste my money on them if they don't have the full octane. No, people were still throwing them down pretty good there. And honestly, I got to say, had me some fish and chips at the stadium. Pretty decent stadium food there. Although I don't, the the signs outside seem to have mostly to do with the footy crowd. Okay. Seems like that might be a rowdy crowd that you have to keep an eye on. Can't be bringing your big torps in there, I No saw. big torps allowed. Did you ever figure out what that meant? Yeah, people sent me gifts of people doing big torps. It's like a kind of kick, kind of kick what they do with the ball. Oh, okay. Also, there's a lot of sports stuff going on in, in Melbourne like these last couple of weeks. They had the grand final of the Australian Football League, the footy. Uh, that was like the weekend before. They have a national holiday for that, Chad, on like the Friday beforehand. So they can go to the parade and whatnot. And then they had this big rugby championship the weekend of the UFC fight. So when I went back after the fights and I was eating dinner and looking up on TV and they were playing rugby, I think I believe it was France and Tonga playing rugby there. Watching just like a half, like one half of a game of rugby, I don't know how anybody survives long enough to play through a full like, tournament of it. It just, just in the time I watched it, one dude seemed to have his head stomped like, like it was a, a damn pumpkin. Yeah. Another guy got a huge gash opened up on his eye, stayed in the game, just watching them play it. I'm just like, how, how is this still a sport? How have all the enthusiasts and adherents of this sport not been killed in the process of playing the game? That's why we don't have a rugby podcast, my man. That's largely why. dead fan base. Okay, yeah. Not a lot of uh not a lot of ratings magic there. Well, Ben, your lengthy travel schedule this week being in you or last week I guess being at UFC 243 really upset the co-main event podcast schedule. We did do some fun stuff while you were gone in the way of an open thread. I believe we got up upwards of like 300 posts in there on the open thread while you were away. Notice you ghosted it, but that's okay. You had other stuff on your mind. I had some stuff to do. Had other stuff going on. I, I jumped in there a little bit, but then I, I got I got busy. Here's what we're going to do this week, because it's Tuesday. We're recording the CME proper a day late. We hope that the people will still catch up with us this afternoon. I have a feeling they will. But at the same time, we are going to run primarily a normal week of offerings for the co-main event podcast listener and the co-main event podcast patron with one exception tomorrow we're going to do the video live chat like we always do wednesday morning yes. 11 o'clock in the one th- one 11, true time zone 11 30 11 30 it's been, it's been a long time 11 30 in the one true time zone we'll have the power hour on friday like we always do we're going to postpone the movie club one week yeah and here's why the voting for the listener-generated movie club pick last week, ended in a tie. An exact tie between Brick and Raising Arizona. So you and I had to settle the voting with a tiebreaker, which we did in the form of a coin flip using an Australian coin. Had a damn kangaroo on it. You, you told me you flipped a coin. I did. It sounded like you flipped a coin. Came up kangaroo. Brick won the toss. We're going to be doing Brick for the Coming Event Podcast Patreon Movie Club, but we're going to push that back a week because we weren't able to get the word out in a widespread way that we're going to be doing Brick. So that we're doing it now on the podcast. 
guys, everyone, we're going to be watching Brick. Yeah. So that'll be next Wednesday. Uh, we'll do the coming event podcast, Patreon Movie Club. Aside from that, everything is going to be the same this week. Back to usual business. So I hope Back the, on our bullshit. I hope the people that are listening to the podcast today will also join us tomorrow for the live chat and bring their questions because if you don't bring your questions, we, we ain't got shit to do. We'll just we'll sit there and talk about rugby. We will. Big torps and just, all that. That's see, that's footy. You're already confused. You can't do a big torp in rugby? Maybe. Similar ball, right? Couldn't you kick it in a in a similar way? Man, you're gonna get so many emails. Looking forward to it. Ben, the reviews are starting to come in for the blaze. You see this? I have seen this. Couple of really you made nice sure that I've seen this. Couple of really nice reviews this past week. Here's a starred review from Publishers Weekly, just came out today, and I quote. Dundas's insightful look at a former soldier's attempts to re-enter civilian life elevates this poignant, action-packed story. The plot soars. Wow. Ben, the plot soars with each believable twist and realistic characters worth rooting for. How about them apples? See, how much does something like that cost you? I got these reviewers bamboozled. How much, how much do you have to pay them to get them? I wish you like could that? pay them. I wish you could pay them for some good reviews. So I keep noticing these uh, weird deductions from the CME business account. You think I'm scratching a check to Publishers Weekly? It just says starred review. As far as I know, these are legitimate reviews. The people like the book. Here's one from Kirkus. This okay. came out also this week. A wounded veteran and a strong newspaper woman combine with a well-constructed plot to spin a plausible and engaging tale. This one wins far more on characters and danger than on bloodshed. Keep books like this coming, Chad Dundas. Wow. So that seems like an order there at the end. Yeah. More adventures of a wounded vet and strong newspaper woman. Strong newspaper woman. Make them plausible, though. See, that's the thing. Got to keep them plausible. I can keep them coming. I want to keep them coming. But as everybody knows, I need your help. I need your support. Go out and pre-order the hardcover version of The Blaze today. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. It comes out in January. But don't wait. You can pre-order that bad boy at Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble and IndieBound.com and wherever else fine books are sold. Another great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt or Dundasso t-shirt. Those are always available on demand all the time whenever you want them. Go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. Let's do some more music from our guy Simeo. Okay. New music from Stockholm-based producer Simeo, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. Uh, that's the guy who did the, the music on the last episode of the CME. We'll be doing it again this week. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O. Also, we have now a Discord page created by Colleen. By well, that's right. Yeah. Everyone's favorite first in CME listener on all the live chats and live streams. She created a Discord page. I don't totally know what that is. It's a it's a, a forum of some kind, correct? Okay. Like okay. an internet forum. Um, so you can go there and, you know, post your dick pics and whatnot. See, you're already, you think you're being funny. <laughs> and you're, you're making sure that some things absolutely do happen. Yeah, maybe. don't do that over on the CME Discord page. Uh, she put the link in the comments here of the live chat on Patreon, or not the live chat, the live stream of this event on Patreon. You can scroll down and see that. We'll also post that somewhere else once we figure out. She's going to make us 
admins of this thing once we figure out. Us? Yeah. You and me? Admins? You and me. Once we figure out what it is and how we do it. Coming up in the world. A couple of admins sitting here doing this podcast. We, we, we have the power to reject or accept your dick pic at that point. All right. I'll put you in charge of that. You're the dick pic, Maven. I'm just going to say this. Lighting counts for a lot. Dick pic editor, Ben Folks, over on the Discord page. We got three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Israel Adesanya is the new UFC middleweight champion, which means we at least got to start pronouncing his name correctly. We'll talk about his KO of Robert Whitaker, let you know what we thought of the dance, and talk about potential fights against Paulo Costa and gasp Johnny Bones Jones. In round number two, what was Bobby Knuckles doing out there, man? Robert Whitaker was classy in defeat, but I have a feeling he's going to want this one back when he gets a chance to see it on film. And in round number three, what up, Tampa? You got Joanna, Yajaychik, and Michelle Watterson coming to your town this weekend, headlining a fight night card that actually ain't too bad. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Benjamin Gabriel, an actual human that you and I have met in person. We did. Handed him his koozie in person. He writes, is that Cain Velasquez's music? Looks like they're going to run it back, brother. I think Cain, Lesnar, and WWE is good for everybody. Is there any downside? What would it take to fuck this up? Cain Velasquez unexpectedly showed up in WWE much faster, I think, than a lot of people anticipated uh, vis-a-vis his pro wrestling career. Got right in the face of Brock Lesnar. I believe this happened on SmackDown, on the first SmackDown over there on the Fox Network. Cain Velasquez, Ben, has a, a history, a career of doing big things on the Fox Network at this point. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I saw the gifts of this, and I saw, like I think, a video clip. Well, then you Cain- saw it all. Yeah, that was all there was to it. That's was him all there was. Going down there, he double-legs Brock Lesnar, throws some punches at Brock Lesnar's guard, and then Brock Lesnar rolls out of the ring and retreats. Yep. Looking, looking a little nervous, maybe? A little bit worse for wear. Maybe he has flashbacks of UFC 121. What do you think that conversation is like with Brock Lesnar? Because obviously, he's a professional. He knows how this business works, and when they tell him, hey, we're bringing Cain Velasquez in, he's going to beat you up, and it'll be like sort of a rhyming action to when he actually did beat you up in real life in the world. Yeah. And then we want you to run away and look frightened. Uh, anyway, so that'll be tonight. That's We're going to do that tonight at like 8.30. Uh, so go ahead and get, get ready for that. Do you think Brock Lesnar is like, this is bullshit? I feel like it's probably a taste of his own medicine type situation for Brock Lesnar, who largely does that exact same thing to every other pro wrestler in the world on the regular. In fact, right before Cain Velasquez came out to make his debut, did you see how they did Kofi Kingston? You know I didn't. Kofi Kingston, likable, well-liked WWE. Maybe he was the universal champion? It's hard for me to keep track of the... uh, of the champions. Seems like if somebody was champion of the universe, you'd remember. Had a belt. He was toting a belt around for some months. Okay. He's a feel-good story for the uh, WWE. Jobbed him out to Brock Lesnar in like seven seconds. Right before 
Cain Velasquez showed his face. Basically, Brock Lesnar came out, hit the ring. Kofi Kingston ran right at him, got F5'd, which is Brock Lesnar's professional wrestling finishing move, pinned for the 1-2-3. Brock won the title, and then Cain Velasquez showed up. So they kind of did to Kofi Kingston what they then immediately did to Brock Lesnar with Cain Velasquez. Well, okay. I mean, like we said before on this show, I'm glad to see Cain Velasquez doing well in yes. the world of professional wrestling. Yes. Seems like things are all happening very quickly for Cain Velasquez. But based on what little I've seen of him actually doing pro wrestling, I keep being amazed at how good he seems at it already. And if the WWE sees that and says, okay, we can work with this Cain Brock Lesnar history. I do wonder, though, where do you go from here? I don't I mean, as far as uh, Ben Grable's question, is there any downside I mean, not really for MMA or pro wrestling, I think. I think yeah. it's good to see that crossover and good to see somebody who, I'm not going to say had hit a wall in MMA, but probably had gone, climbed as high the ladder that he was going to climb. Yeah. And so for him to find a new career in pro wrestling, I think is a good thing. I don't really see a major downside, but I do wonder what the arc looks like. I mean, you think 10 years from now, Cain Velasquez is still in the WWE? Probably not. I mean, it's hard to imagine a guy, despite the fact that he's been super impressive in all of the highlights that we've seen of his pro wrestling work up to this point. It's hard to imagine a guy quite as green as Cain Velasquez, like taking on a full-time WWE uh, work schedule. Maybe they won't make him do that. Of course, you know what? I said the same thing about Ronda Rousey and she did okay for herself. Although at this point, I don't know what her future is there right now. I don't know if she's still going to carry on being a a full-time WWE employee or if she's you know, segueing out of that career and is going to find something else to do. But at this point, I'm just going to feel happy for Cain Velasquez. It seems like he likes this. It seems like he wants to do it. He's probably going to make a pocket full of money going over there to WWE. So good for him. Good for him indeed. Next question this week comes to us from Richard T. James. Okay. Who writes, I'm sure you have seen the video of Michael Bisping taking out his eye by now. First off, Damn! Second off, props to Bisping for fighting tons of beasts at 185 with just one eye. My question is, how the hell did he ever get cleared to fight when he could only see out of one damn eye? Jeremy Stevens just had his fight waved off because he could only see out of one eye. Discourse. Well, good to hear from uh, naval engineer and inventor of the slinky, (laughs) Richard T. James. Nice. Yeah, Yeah. living high off that slinky money. Yeah. Or at least he was until he died in 1974 in Bolivia. We, uh, We do... We do big numbers in the good place. The afterlife. Yeah. The afterlife is big fans of the CME. Uh, uh, can I tell you something? I have not see, I have not been able to watch this video to its conclusion. You have not seen Michael Bisping I've pull seen, his eye out? I mean, that's if you've I've, seen that part of it, you've seen all the I is. have started to watch it, and then I go, nope. You bail out of the eye? Yeah. See, I watched it unawares. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I, people told me about it before I, I watched it, but as soon I tried to get through it. And as soon as he starts doing it, I'm just like... No, I don't. I don't want this. I don't want this in my in my head. Bisping pulls his eye out, puts it back in, laughing all the while, Michael Bisping style. It does raise a legitimate question in my view about the medical pre-fight screening that these fighters go through. Because one of the things Bisping said was that he used to wear dark glasses. He would wear dark glasses into his medical evaluation with the state athletic commissions, and and he would pass. But, I mean, he still had the eye at the time he was fighting, right? I don't know. Like, it wasn't working that well, but he still had it, I think. I think that the actual... Because 
That would be really something, wouldn't it, if they didn't notice that you had a false eye? Yes, it would. That's It's, it's uh, dumbfounding, in fact, if that's what the case was. Also, there have long been questions in both boxing and MMA about the validity of the pre-fight medical screenings. You remember that 30 for 30 that they did about Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes? Yes. And they were saying that Muhammad Ali was already so bad off at the time that he fought Larry Holmes that when they tr- we took him to do the pre-fight medicals in Las Vegas, he couldn't stand on one one foot. He, his equilibrium was so bad. You know, his voice, you could hear him slurring a little bit his words just in the interviews uh, during that 30 for 30. And then when he went to try to stand on one foot, he'd fall over. And they still let the fight go through because there's just so much more emphasis placed on making sure to to approve these fights, get them through there. Hey, you get them in there, something bad happens to them, something bad happens to them afterwards, we'll deal with that. All the the stuff in the system is geared toward making sure that the fights are able to happen. Yeah. I remember Margaret Goodman, who used to be a doctor with the Nevada State Athletic Commission, telling me how her husband, Flip Hamansky, who also had been a doctor with the uh, commission, had once written an article and this was more about boxing and about head trauma and everything and, and forcing fighters to stop or not licensing them when they've clearly taken too much damage. The title of the article, she said, was something along the lines of how to do the right thing and be the most hated person in boxing. Because nobody really wants you to come in there and say for these medical exams, like, hey, we did the medical exam and it turned out the answer is no. Yeah. We don't want we don't want it to be a yes or no thing. We want the medical exam to just be part of like a pre-fight formality. Yeah. If even if the fake eye, the prosthetic eye of Michael Bisping is a is a recent development, I feel like you do got to give a shout out to Michael Bisping for becoming the UFC middleweight champion for fighting, you know, tough guy after tough guy during his career, apparently at least unable to mostly see out of one eye. That is just incredible, kind of an incredible accomplishment that you know, makes the storybook end of his career all the more remarkable. Yeah. And really puts in perspective what this sport took from him, the price that it took for him to reach that point, especially him in particular, because as we talked about before, one of the things that seemed really different about his career was that he wasn't like somebody who showed up on the scene and immediately you said, this guy is so supremely talented that he's just going to blow everybody else away. Especially later in his career, a lot of the wins he got, he paid in blood. Yeah. And to see that now, you realize, wow, the, the cost was even greater than we realized at the time. And especially since one of the other narratives of his career was nobody was hurt more by the TRT era than Michael Bisping. When you look at who he lost to and the time both in the the TRT era time and the time in his career that those losses came like against Vitor Belfort, Dan Henderson, guys like that, where those were major setbacks that he took major damage in. And because he was fighting these enhanced fighters at a time when that was shockingly allowed. Yeah. If not damn encouraged. Well, speaking of people emailing us from beyond the grave and paying in blood, this next email is from old time comedy man, Buster Keaton. Okay. He writes, take a minute 
pleas to discourse on the amazing fight between Brad Riddell and Jamie Malarkey. It was pure action from start to finish, complete with a few momentum swings and slow-mo highlights that seemed to turn Malarkey's face into a plasticine caricature of itself. Good stuff indeed. Now this was a hell of a slobber knocker. The undercard fight between Brad Riddell and Jamie Malarkey. I believe both guys making their UFC debuts. I think so. Uh, ended in a decision. Brad Riddell wins 30-27 times one and then 30-26 times two. Still a great fight, especially in the third round. It really kind of got crazy. Uh, and there at the end where Jamie Malarkey's mouthpiece is just flying all over the damn cage and has to get it put back in at least once. <laughs> and Brad Riddell uh, nails him with that punch on the ground. They're both kind of on their knees. And he hits him with a punch right at the final horn that just rattled his whole head. And it was a, it was an exciting fight. It was a, a, you know, a worthwhile fight. One of the real high spots of the UFC 243 preliminary card. And another one of those ones where speaking of what the sport costs you, you can just watch both uh, Brad Riddell, whose nickname I believe is Quake. Quake Riddell. Does that sound right? Let's check it out. Uh, you could watch him and Jamie Malarkey Quake. Yeah. both giving of themselves, I guess you would say, in this fight. Both guys pick up $50,000 fight of the night bonuses, and uh, damn, they deserved it. Yeah, that was a crazy one to watch. Like, as I would say, like early in the second round, it became clear that it seemed like Brad Riddell was the better fighter. But Jamie Malarkey was just so damn tough. He even had opportunities to win that fight, just as Brad Riddell slowed down at times. And Brad Riddell was the most exhausted person I think I've ever seen by the end of this fight. His walk past media row on his way out of there, it was the slowest post-fight exit walk I think I've ever seen. You could just tell he had nothing left at all. And there was a moment, like you mentioned that at the end of the fight there, they're both on their knees, and he just takes that one last punch at him before the horn. And then after the horn... They both just kind of stayed there for a second, looking at each other like, Jesus Christ, how how is it possible that we're both still here after three rounds of that? Yeah. And you know what? In the UFC and in the MMA in general, like we've kind of carved out a space in our hearts for people that fight that way. So like even though Jamie Malarkey loses this fight, uh, he's the kind of guy that you want to see him again. And I wouldn't be surprised if both of these guys you know, maybe this won't be the ceiling of their career, but I wouldn't be surprised to see either of them winding up as the kind of guy who gets called every time the UFC is in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah, but I mean, that's not a great deal for you. The UFC not going to be in that neighborhood that much. Well, they're going over there more often, though, not just Australia, but, you know, uh, Singapore, the whole uh, Oceana, Oceanic area. Okay. So, you know, if you if you can be one of those guys to to get calls for those events, it might not be... You know, it might not be too long a break between events, at least as compared to how it used to be. You better stay ready then. Stay ready. Next question this week comes to us from Ollie Brown. Downtown Brown. Who writes, I consume roughly 17 hours of MMA content per week. However, Bellator 229 caught me utterly unawares. When I discovered it Sunday night below the fold on DAZN's app, I assumed it must have been a random event lacking any prominent names, exclusively streamed for some European country just west of Narnia. But no, Larkin, Koroshkov, Schilling from California, airing both on Paramount and DAZN. Did I simply miss something or did Scott Coker forget to send an email to anyone in the 
MMA media. This was a, a bit of an under the radar Bellator event. And in fact, last week, I don't know if you saw this, Ben, since you were in Australia, but when Bellator media, they always, they send out like the uh, weigh-in results and they yeah. always have weigh-in pictures. And uh, in this one, they, they had the, uh, the picture of Lorenz Larkin and Andre Korshkov kind of doing the face-off after their, uh, I think it was after the weigh-in, and they both had looks on their faces, like they knew they were about to be in one of the lowest-watched Bellator events of the year, because their expressions were like, it was like they were brothers, and they had gotten in trouble, and their mom told them they were going to have to fight it at Bellator 229. <laughs> I think I, I saw this on Twitter, maybe from you, or maybe from Dan Stuff. Yeah, Somebody. just a couple of guys looking super excited to go out there and... <laughs> Fight in the Bellator 229 main well, event. Well, and I like the reference here to below the fold on the DAZN app. Yeah. You can't even really get... DAZN is the one broadcasting. You'd think that they would want to highlight it a little more. You would you, think so. Did you have to go scrolling around to find this one? I guess you did. I don't know. I've not watched it myself. I just know that Lorenz Larkin defeated Andre Korshkov via split decision. Uh, so that's one of those uh, Bellator events that I think will largely just slip into the ether. See, this is what we talked about before with Bellator, that the challenge, now that you've gotten to the point where you have enough big names and interesting fights you can put together, that you can show up every once in a while with one. Even one that, on the same weekend as a UFC event, gets our attention. Can you sustain that interest between those events? Yeah. And this is the kind of event that makes you think, well, maybe we're still not there. Yeah, every every you know once every few events, it seems like they still lay an egg out there. We were just coming off of Ryan Bader versus Czech Congo and rolled into the, you know, the somewhat low-profile Ireland event, but did have James Gallagher against Roman Salazar in the main event, and seemed like appointment viewing over in that part of the world, if nothing else. And of course, then uh, Gegard Mousasi and Lyoto Machida at Bellator 228, and a bunch of awesome fights for the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix. So I guess you stick Lorenz Larkin and Andre Korshkov in there. Uh, it's kind of a low-profile thing. And then you got Melvin Manhoff with a fight uh, in Italy at, at Bellator 230 coming up uh, on October 12th. You're just trying to build a bridge, I guess, to Frank Mir and Roy Nelson, even though I'm not sure that That's what the bridge goes to? <laughs> well, maybe that's where you stop to get lemonade while you're on the bridge, and the bridge ultimately goes to Rory McDonald versus Douglas Lima, October 26th. Yeah, the bridge can't... I mean, that's like... Hey, let's make sure we build a bridge to this garbage barge that's floating out there in the bay. <laughs> Come on, garbage barge. We, we want to be able to connect people with that. And ouch for Frank Mir and Roy Nelson. It's a garbage barge because we threw it out a long time ago. <laughs> Haven't thought about it since then. And then we go ahead and run it back. All right, last question this week comes to us from Jared, Mc, Jared McFadden or Jared McFadden. Question for the resident jujitsu nerd. Oh, here we go. That's you. Okay. Megan Anderson. Is it Megan or Megan? Because we've been told in the past that it's Megan. We were chastised for saying Megan in the past. This weekend, they showed up saying Megan at UFC 243. Just making this shit up as we go, I guess. I'm going to say Megan because the the people from the land down under got super mad at us last time. M. Anderson. Megan Anderson won via triangle choke last night, and I noticed a little something different about her technique. I noticed this, too. She had her own arm stuck inside the triangle. Was that done to create less space, thereby tightening the choke? That would make sense for someone with long legs like Anderson. Is there a name for this version or variation? Thanks, nerd. You know, I've seen people experiment with a lot of different things. Like, we're using the arm as one of the things to cut off 
the blood flow in the neck. Because, you know, the way the triangle works, you've got your leg on one side cutting off the, the blood flow and then their own shoulder forced in by your, your other thigh so close to their neck that it cuts off the blood flow on the other side. And I've seen people use their own forearms in situations where, for one reason or another, they can't get that, that cut off. Uh, either because of, you know, I've seen people finish a, a no arm in guillotine that way because you can't get the person's shoulder in there. So you go ahead and you stick your own forearm in there and use that as the thing that you, I don't know if she was doing it on purpose in that one or if she just kind of in, tr- in reaching up and trying to control uh, her opponent's posture if her arm just got stuck in yeah. there that way. But as long as it's also helping create that seal against the, the neck on the carotid artery, it can still work that way. Yeah. And I mean, uh, especially for her. A triangle is already going to be such a dangerous position against her because she her legs are so long. She can probably she probably gets used to getting people from all different angles with that kind of thing. And so once she's going to put it on, if her arm gets stuck in there, she probably feels like, all right, you're already you had a good angle on it, and you get the squeeze. Uh, I was surprised watching her in that fight because it seemed like to me there was a a disparity of talent and ability. She was there. one of the biggest favorites on the card going up against Zara Fairn. Well, was also it, coming in, I think, to make her UFC debut. She might have had one UFC fight previous to this, but Zara Farron just looked scared. Yeah, well, didn't it feel like everyone knows that Megan Megan, that she needed to win this one. Yep. She needed a victory in a really bad way. And then you go down there to Australia, you have her on the card. It seems like maybe the UFC wants her to win one too and turn things around a little bit, stop the skid. Get the home crowd into it a little bit. And so you book her into this fight where maybe it seems like the other person is the opponent there to do one thing and to lose. And so she got mount pretty early on in that fight and she was being very careful with it very early as if nobody told her like, hey, this is the person you steamroll. And then when she got kind of rolled over there toward the end of the round, and it seemed at first like, oh, don't tell me you're going to mess this up, going to lose this dominant position. And then she transitioned it right away to the, the triangle choke and got the finish. It's like, okay. But it did seem like the matchmaking here had a goal and achieved it. Yeah, and she did need to get this win, especially to preserve any kind of the uh, you know aura or momentum that she had when she came over as the Invicta Women's Featherweight Champion uh, in early, I guess, mid-2018, she made her UFC debut. Rolled right in, UFC 225 against Holly Holm, which is... It was a tough fight. Yeah, not a uh, not an easy welcoming committee for Megan Anderson. In fact, these are the people she's fought in the UFC before Zara Farron. Holly Holm, Kat Zingano, and Felicia Spencer. So that's a pretty, uh, you know, applaudable list of opponents. She had to win this one to avoid a complete letdown. And I think if you are going to be a, a capital G guy in the women's featherweight division, like capital G girl, that's a very Does that work. That's a very uh, shallow division. It's probably in everyone's best interest to keep Megan Anderson as a viable commodity in that in that division. And frankly, like to see her post fight kind of emotional post fight interview at the media event after the thing, I was happy for. Her. I was glad that she was able to go get that win. I just noticed floating on my Twitter timeline as we speak from our guy Elias Cepeda over there at Yahoo Sports MMA Technique Talk inside Megan Anderson's Slick Triangle Choke Submission. 
at UFC 243. So if you got questions, it's possible Elias has answers. Go find that at uh, Yahoo Sports. You could really see the relief on her face after that one. Though. She knew she needed to win it. And yeah. that's, that's what it was when she won it. It was just like, okay, now you yeah. can breathe a little bit. In any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast while you're there. Go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to get you up on the news and notes that we miss during the week when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we've got another situation here with Israel Adesanya, where we've been saying his name one way this whole time. Now he's the champion. I think I had seen reports of this nature. We might even have discussed it earlier on the show, but now we're going to say his name a different way because it seems like he's going to be around for a while. And I think I'm putting it mildly to say he might be a factor. So Israel Adesanya. Okay. That's, that might take me a while. Izzy. Can I just say Izzy? Uh, we'll go for that. And if you know what, if we screw it up and we say Adesanya, so be it. That'll just prove how old school we are. In any case, he comes out there and defeats Robert Whitaker via second round KO in the main event of UFC 243. What felt like a bit of a tectonic shift, frankly, in the 185 pound division to have this guy, uh, Israel Adesanya, who the UFC had been kind of tailoring for a star role in its organization from the beginning. I thought it was going to be a little bit too early for him. I thought Bobby Knuckles would take care of him in this fight. I was wrong. The exact opposite thing happened. Uh, Adesanya seemed to find that was a right hook pretty early in this fight to can't counter the, uh, the weird lunging in combinations of, of Robert Whitaker. He landed a few times, dropped him at the end of round one, came out again in round two, more of the same, ends up knocking him out three minutes and 33 seconds into the second round. You got a new 185-pound champion, Ben. Let's start with just the fight, and then we can move on to everything else. What'd you think here of the matchup between Adesanya and Robert Whitaker and the way it played out? You know, I was really impressed with uh, my man Izzy's poise, let's say, under pressure there, because I did think, too, that if Robert Whitaker was able to get inside and touch him up some and bully him around a little bit, that that would be a big problem for him. And I was really surprised at how when Whitaker did get inside, he wasn't too worried about it. He he was content to just kind of lean out of the way of some of those strikes. At some of those, he was avoiding just by millimeters. Yeah. They were getting really close. And sometimes he was getting touched, but coming right back and just had a lot of stuff with which to, to threaten Whitaker and was very, very calm throughout all these exchanges. I mean, you watch that fight ending exchange there where... You know, you mentioned it in the first round, he dropped him with that, that right hand, like a, like a right hook that comes from kind of a almost uppercut angle. And in the second round, the fight deciding blow, it was the left hand that he got at the end of that exchange there where Whitaker's kind of diving in there and throwing hard at him. 
And it happens so fast. We're just like two punches from Whitaker, and then he fires right back with two of his own and catches him with the left hand that drops him at the end of that exchange. And you could tell that he really was not that worried about Whitaker getting in there and fighting him in close. Because that's one of the things that we said after we watched him fight Kelvin Gastelum. We were like, we were surprised at how a pretty small middleweight like Gastelum was able to get in there and hurt him. And yeah. thought, man, if Gastelum can do that to you, what's Whitaker going to do to you? But it turned out not really an issue. I mean, when he left, landed that left hand, I was close enough and had a good enough angle on that one that you could see the moment he landed it in Robert Whitaker's eyes that he was done. Like, he he took him a second. You know, he staggered back, trying to find his legs under him, and, and then collapsed. But as soon as that punch landed, the... the the look in his eyes was just completely vacant. Like yeah. you knew he was not going to be able to take that. So now you got Adesanya, your middleweight champion, obviously a native of Nigeria, the longtime New Zealander, seems to be the total package, really, in what you're looking for in a promotable mixed martial arts fighter. We saw this weekend, and we had seen in the past, he's clearly got the goods inside the cage. It wasn't quite as over-the-top, maybe, as the Anderson Silva performance against Forrest Griffin, but the way that he was making Robert Whitaker miss on these punching combinations and then firing back with his with his counters was remarkable. It did look a little bit like something out of the Matrix. And at this point, you beat the guy that we thought might be the long-standing champion at this weight. Uh, Adesanya is obviously good on the mic. He danced his damn way down to the cage before this fight. Uh, he seems to be everything you want in a promotable MMA fighter. And I guess the question now, I guess it's twofold, really. How big a star do you think he can be? And what do you think the UFC is best off doing with him immediately? Uh, he has all the stuff you want out of a star there. From from start to finish, it was just a fantastic and almost flawless performance for trying to go out there and really get the spotlight for yourself. Especially the, the pre-fight stuff. The thing that really struck me about that is... You're putting yourself in a tough spot when you do that. You've got to win after that. And you got to win and look really good doing it. You do all that stuff. We talked about it before with the dude doing flips and everything, doing a bunch of stuff before the fight, doing flips in the fight. If you lose that fight, people are going to be like, you idiot. Yeah. Doing all this shit before you even get in the cage. Of course, you tired yourself out. And you you draw a lot of attention on yourself that way in, in, a, in a fashion that makes it so that the only thing you can do to not become a sort or a object of derision, a meme for the rest of your goddamn life is you have to win. Yeah. And it speaks really to his confidence. Not only that they can go out there and pull off this choreographed, like synced dance and look pretty cool doing it. I mean, it, there's so many ways to fuck that up. Yeah. Can you imagine like, if, if a fighter wrote into our service and was like, okay, here's what I want to do. Here's the, using our, our little like Skype service or whatever we have where we just tell fighters it's a bad idea and charge them 40 bucks. He wrote in and he was like, I want to do a dance with my corner man, my corner man, where they all do some routine to a monologue from Taken. Then I come out there. We do a dance together. I do flips and everything. And then I go down to the cage. We would have been like, don't do that. If somebody just fucks up the dance portion, if it's out of sync, if it just doesn't look as cool as you think it's going to, if you lose in one of the many ways you can lose in a mixed martial arts fight, it the fallout is going to be so tremendous. So don't do it. But he, I mean, the the confidence that he has yeah. is the thing that gives him this this kind of charisma. And he had it all week, and every time you'd see him at stuff all week, he's just kind of walking around 
and had that thing where you can tell even people who don't know anything about this sport are looking at him going, that's somebody. I, I, I should know who that is. Yeah. Uh, we've seen choreographed dance introductions in MMA before. We've seen him in the UFC before. Uh, James Tahuna, I think, did a Men in Black takeoff on his way to the cage at, at one point. Gono did it. Yeah. Gono. All his cornermen in evening gowns. He's That's done memorable. that. But to me, to walk out for a title fight yeah. in front of 57,000 people, no less, and have the fucking stone-cold backbone to do that was impressive. And then, of course, he gets in the cage and... and turns in a virtually flawless performance against a guy that we really thought was going to give him trouble. It's always hard to speculate about how big a star a person can be. And obviously, if you look at real big UFC draws of the past, somebody like George St. Pierre or somebody like Conor McGregor, the thing that they had to arguably put them over the top was the big hometown, home country following. George St. Pierre was a superstar in Canada. Conor McGregor was a superstar in Ireland. You know, you got some other people like Brock Lesnar who brought along maybe some of the uh, mainstream fans and pro wrestling fans and Ronda Rousey, who was just kind of like a meteor in her own right with, with capturing uh, mainstream attention. If I was going to speculate about Israel Adesanya, I think my gut reaction is that he can be a very big star on the order of a John Jones type individual in the the MMA bubble. But I'm not sure unless unless a huge crowd of Australians is going to turn out to watch him fight every time and buy the pay-per-views every time. I'm not sure that he's a mainstream star at this point. Although you you hate to, you know, put a ceiling on it either because like I said, it's so hard to anticipate. If he's not, then I think it's only a matter of exposure, like yeah. getting them, giving people the opportunity to see him and find out about him and hear from him. Especially, you know how I always know somebody is a, a good interview is in the post-fight press conference stuff. The way I usually do it when I'm there in person is I'll record it like on my recorder and then I'll have my notebook so that when they do say something interesting that I think I might want to use later, I look at the time on the recorder, write that down, and only when they say something where it's immediately evident, okay, I'm definitely going to use it, and it's not that long a quote where I can remember exactly what you just said and write it down word for word in my notebook. And when I got back to my hotel after this one and looked in my notebook, I had like four or five quotes from Israel Adesanya that were just, the moment he said it, I was like, okay, that's good. Like, we're putting that down for sure. And he is very, very quotable. He speaks in these quotes that are like phrases that seem both like unique to him, but also immediately make you think, oh, I'm using that. Yeah. That's good stuff. Also, and I asked him about this at the press conference, he talked about it a little bit, really speaks to fans in their own language. You can tell he's out there looking at all the same memes on social media about MMA that you are, and he's been reading the same stories, has an encyclopedic knowledge and memory of all the stuff that's happened in the sport. He really is just another nerd fan who happens to be really, really good at the sport. And I think that the more you hear from him, the more that kind of stuff comes across. Yeah, a remarkable rise for Israel Adesanya. Only been in the UFC since February of 2018. That's crazy. And has won seven fights in a row. 18-0 and overall now as an MMA fighter. Of course, he had a, a kickboxing career before that. But he is now the champion, having unified the middleweight titles 
with this win over Robert Whitaker, it would appear that Paulo Costa is next. And that's probably the right fight to make. Overinflated uh, balloon animal, Paulo Costa. That's a good line too, man. Come I know, on. I know it is. Uh, but I think we at least need to address briefly the idea of this John Jones fight because these two guys are still right now at this point on Tuesday kind of going after each other in the press. I think it seems like it's too early, especially since you just really established Israel Adesanya as a star. Like you just put the middleweight title on him. Let the guy breathe. Let his star potential come to the fore and mature to the point where we can say this guy is a big, significant MMA star. Like I feel like if you throw him out there against John Jones immediately, you're just making the guy vulnerable in a way that you don't need to right away. Poppycock. Poppycock and balderdash. We need to stop even giving this one oxygen. Well, they're not going to stop chipping at each other, so I think you better get used to it. I think that Israel would stop if if John Jones weren't constantly saying stuff and people asking Israel to respond to it. This is a bad look for John Jones. Even if this fight happens, it's a bad look for John Jones because you just seem like a bully. You won't go up to heavyweight and keep talking about how you don't want to do that. You're the light heavyweight champion. You're going to stay there and, and fight even when... The available challengers at times seem not that compelling. But as soon as the opportunity to beat up a middleweight comes along, you can't stop talking about it. Yeah. That's a, that's a bad look for your man, John Jones. Yeah, we, we are you typically talking about John Jones against heavyweights. Like, those are the yeah, matchups that's what that you want to see. You want to see him do see. it in a different weight class? You want to see him go up. And especially if he won't go up. And I understand it as a negotiating tactic saying, hey, the UFC wants to see me go up. Fans are increasingly interested in seeing me go up. Pay me more to go up. But then when somebody else from a lower weight class starts popping off and you're going immediately, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll shove that guy in a locker. You just seem like an asshole. Yeah, it is the money fight, though. And it might become a bigger money fight the longer these two guys stick around. So we can never, we can never underestimate or uh, dismiss the money fight. Because the guys are going to take the money fights when they're available. Sure, okay. But, I mean, especially for Adesanya, there is work to be done at middleweight. I agree. Him versus Paulo Costa, that's perfect. Because you've seen Paulo Costa coming up. They're smashing fools, getting people excited. He shows up to this one in a a shirt that seems designed so that you cannot miss him. <laughs> you you have to notice this guy, even if, you know, with satellite imagery. And he's right there in the front row, and then you got Israel talking about him as an overinflated balloon animal, looking like a like Ricky Martin on steroids. And you look at him, and you're like, dude, he does kind of look like Ricky Martin, all all beefed up. That's actually a fairly good comparison. And stylistically, it seems like a fun fight where they are right now. The the heat between them is something more than whatever rivalry we tried to foment as Australia versus New Zealand uh, with uh, uh, Israel and, and Robert Whitaker. It just makes so much sense. It's served up on a silver platter. Do that first, and then let's think about what's next. Yeah, I agree. Kick the can down the road a little bit on John Jones versus Israel Adesanya. And even if you're just talking about in the MMA bubble, Adesanya versus Paulo Costa is kind of an amazing fight. Yeah. So let's just do that one yeah. and be happy with it. Absolutely. And then we'll figure the rest out later. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will go on to round number two. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Chad, did you hear Diego Lima fought on this card? You yeah, saw that one. Yeah, he did. Fought, had a pretty good performance, uh, beat Luke Jamu, uh, 
via Luke Jumo, come Jumeau, on, Jumu, come on, uh, via split decision. Now, a lot of people were surprised it was a split decision. It's not like he absolutely blew him away, but it seemed pretty clear that Diego Lima had won two out of three rounds. And one judge disagreed, gave two out of three rounds to, to Luke Jumeau. And word on the street is that Diego Lima is going to appeal his victory. A new spin on an old favorite, you might say. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Now, I get the thinking kind of behind it that I don't understand what this judge was thinking. I want to hear him explain it. And honestly, I'm in favor of us doing a lot more of that. Just in general. I don't think that there should need to be an appeal process for us to ask a judge and for the commissions, to the way the California Commission does, to get more proactive about when a judge is an outlier on some of these scorecards, finding out what did you think you saw? What was your reasoning here? So let's look, make sure there's a constant evaluation process going on for these judges so that we have good judges in there. However, I'd also be a little bit nervous about appealing my own victory. The yeah. good news is that appeals never do anything in this sport. The bad news is that the way MMA can be fucked up at times, I don't want to encourage anybody to take a second look at it. I don't want to just take my victory and go home. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, you don't want to appeal a win? You don't want them to be like, hey, you know what? Now that we think about yeah. it, maybe the other guy did win. Yeah. Ben, you know what we keep saying about Bare Knuckle FC? What's that, Chad? That they keep... Being relatively judicious in who they sign, who they pluck out of the MMA world, where they allocate their resources, they keep signing these guys where on one hand you're like, well, that's ridiculous. And on the other hand, you're like, but I would be curious to see what would happen. Hector Lombard. Oh, boy. You fucking kidding me? In a bare knuckle fight, I believe judo Olympian, right? That's right. Lombard. You think judo Olympian, you think, but... Can he bare knuckle box? I mean, this is the one guy, right? This is the one judo Olympian that you'd be curious to see how he would do in a bare knuckle fight. You fucking kidding me, Hector Lombard? It's another one. It's another one for bare knuckle FC. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Coming into this weekend, Robert John Whitaker, known around these parts as Bobby Knuckles, hadn't lost since February 2014 when he lost to uh, TKO against Stephen Wonderman Thompson. Then he comes into this fight after a fairly lengthy layoff dealing with uh, injuries and collapsed bowels and whatnot. All sorts of stuff has been going on in his life. And he came in here as the slight underdog, which I gotta say surprised me. And then when you see the two fighters standing there face to face, and then especially see them in the cage together, you realize, oh yeah, there is a bit of a size disparity there. And I wonder how much trying to deal with that size disparity affected Whitaker's game plan for this fight. Because one of the things that was most notable early on was him charging in. Yeah. And as he, I asked him about it in the post-fight press conference and asking what the strategy was there. And he was just saying, look, 
you can't stand on the outside with him because he can hit you there and you can't hit him back. So I had to close that distance. And his way of closing the distance was just kind of like lunging or racing in there. What do you make of that? Was that the right strategy just not executed well enough? I was really surprised by it. It seemed like he was doing kind of like an off-brand Kelvin Gastelum impression. Like we all watched this fight between Israel Adesanya and Kelvin Gastelum. And it was obviously a fight of the year contender. And, and Gastelum seemed to give Adesanya some problems. And it seemed like maybe, I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth or put a, a strategy on him that isn't true, but like it seemed like Robert Whitaker saw that and was like, okay, we've seen the blueprint. We've seen how to do this. And if I do that and I get inside and I bring my power to bear on Adesanya, I will win this fight. Because maybe I'm crazy but I don't, I don't remember Robert Whitaker fighting like that in the past. Like, I watched this fight and I was like, wow, this is a really dramatically different looking approach from Robert Whitaker. And it was one of those things where, like, really early on I was like, and it's not going to work. Like, I was watching it at home kind of being like, oh, this is, doesn't seem like the best thing to do. And then, of course, he goes out there and gets knocked out in the second round, especially after he got dropped at the end of the first I would have thought he would have come out of his corner in the second round with a much more diverse game plan. At least shoot a double. Grab a single leg or something. Make Adesanya do a different thing than what you were doing in the first round. And after it was over, and you got to hand it to him, obviously, with, with the class and the grace that Robert Whitaker handled this loss. But I really felt, like I said at the beginning of the show, when he goes back home and he watches this, if he does, if he watches the film of this fight, I think he is going to be mad at himself. I think he's going to be like, I want that one back because I feel like I could do different stuff. I could fight in a different way. And who knows if the outcome would be different, but we could at least roll the dice a different way and see how they turn up. And I think the good news is like Robert Whitaker has a good chance of getting back into another middleweight title fight, despite the fact that it's really hard and frankly, fairly rare in this sport for someone to get the belt back. It just doesn't happen that often. But he's the kind of guy that I think has a, stands a good chance of getting an opportunity to get back there. Yeah. And I would be interested to see a rematch because, to be honest with you, I was kind of blown away by the uh, how this fight looked. It did not look how I expected. Robert Whitaker did not fight how I expected at all. And after it, I had, I had regrets. You did, huh? Well, I'm... I'm not surprised that the game plan didn't change too much from round one to two. Because, for one thing, it's tough to get dropped at the very end of the round. Which, I'm sure he was probably telling himself, and seemed to be telling himself at the post-fight press conference, I was doing alright until he got until he, he got a good one on me. And then, hey, that can happen. But also, he got dropped right at the end of the round. Yeah. So... You probably spend a lot of that first round or a lot of that break between the first and second rounds just trying to get your wits about you. It's probably really tough to go from I was on the floor woozy to all right, now let's change it up entirely in time for you to get out there in the 60 seconds between the first and the second round. I was surprised, though, that he didn't at least try to initiate more wrestling, more grappling exchanges in that fight because... And I asked him afterwards, and he said he felt like he didn't need to, but that it was there in the game plan if he wanted it, but he felt like he, he hadn't gotten to the point where he needed that. Because I would have thought, if you'd asked me what I what kind of fight I would have expected to see, I agree that you can't stand there on the outside against him because he's too tall and long, and he's too dangerous from that position, and you're not going to be able to do a whole lot to him. But 
I would have expected Whitaker to look to kind of close off the cage a little bit and see if you could march him back towards the fence. Try to walk him back towards the fence where you can get into a clinch fight with him. You can look for takedowns from there without sacrificing too much, without having to shoot out for a double leg out there in the open. And see if you can get him on the ground there and beat him up and, and take a little bit of gas out of the tank for the later rounds. That kind of thing. And he didn't really look to do that at all. And instead just felt like, okay, getting inside is the problem. But once I'm in there, once I solve that problem, then everything is okay. But the problem is if your first move has to be diving straight in to get inside and get close enough to hit the guy, then that leaves an opening for what comes next. And that's kind of what we saw from Adesanya there. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, maybe he'll go back and, and look at that afterwards and think, okay, I could have done different stuff. Maybe it's just a, a matter of he's been off for a long time and had to come up with this plan to, to go in there and, and fight this one. And it turned out that he didn't have the, you know, a couple of those punches where he was just a little bit off, missed by just a little bit. Maybe your timing's a little bit off after that long layoff. I do think, though, the way he handled it is as good as I've ever seen anyone handle a, a huge loss in a huge title fight, like the biggest fight of their career. He lost it, and he showed up at the press conference afterwards, like, making easy, genial conversation and willing to have an honest conversation about what happened in that fight. That's as good as you can possibly do it. Yeah, and Robert Whitaker is a likable guy. I think he's been that way his entire UFC career. Uh, and no one would have blamed him if he hadn't have showed up at that press conference, but he did. And I think that that all of that is to his credit. I wonder what happens next because you have obviously Adesanya is your new champion, likely going to fight Paulo Costa. You don't want to run Yoel Romero no. and Robert Whitaker nope, out nope, there nope, for nope, a nope, seventh nope. or eighth time or whatever it would be. What's Kelvin Gastelum up to? You got Kelvin Gastelum. You got Jared Cannonier. Okay. You just want to fight. Uh, obviously, Chris Weidman and, and Jacare Souza are out of the picture at this point. But, you know, uh, above and beyond that, like, I don't, you know, there's not a ton of guys crowding around the Robert Whitaker level right now at middleweight. So I think. Singing and dancing Jacker Manson? Which would make sense if he hadn't just they're, lost. But well, they're both coming off losses. Right. So. He's one of those guys who's right up there. I would think Gastelum, Hermanson, or Cannoneer would be your, your options at this point. Uh, so we'll have to see how, how that plays out. But uh, obviously a disappointing finish here for, for Robert Whitaker at UFC 243. Uh, I just feel like maybe he didn't – maybe he underestimated the power. There's another thing that happened because you look at Adesanya's previous UFC career, he hadn't really stopped that many people. He stopped uh, – Rob Wilkinson. Maybe he only stops guys named Rob. Maybe that's the okay. issue. Uh, he stopped Rob Wilkinson early on in his in his UFC career, and then he stopped Derek Brunson at UFC 230. But like you know, Gastelum and and Adesanya went to the decision. Anderson Silva went the distance. Brad Tavares went the distance. Marvin Vittori went the distance. I was surprised by the power. I bet I don't think Robert that one, Whitaker was a little bit as well. I don't know if it was so much power that made those shots so effective. I think it was that he didn't see him. Uh, that punch, it's essentially the same punch that drops him both times, just with different hands. And the the angle that he's throwing that punch from and the way he's finishing these punch, these back and forth exchanges, he's finishing with that punch. I think it's just that he didn't see him and they caught him right. I don't think it's just the overwhelming power that put him down. Well, now you're just talking semantics. No, not really. I mean, you I knock mean, I a guy out with a punch. I think it's 
it's it's timing and I mean the, the guy just not seeing it coming at all like not even realizing that he's about to get hit those are the ones that hurt you so much and I, I mean that's what I think that uh, Israel had a song uh, when you watch that that Anderson Silva fight one of the things that I think made that one not so exciting was that he would love for somebody to fight him like Robert Whitaker fights him. To come in there, to, to come right after him, dive after him, th- throw two punches, and then still be standing there and waiting for the counter afterwards. Like he, he is the kind of fighter he really thrives off of that. If the other person makes him go first, then he is sometimes not as effective. So I think in that sense, Whitaker played exactly to his strengths. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, heaven forbid there would be a break in the action or a chance to catch your breath or even let any of this sink in because we got to go down to Tampa next weekend for UFC on ESPN Plus 19, headlined by a women's strawweight fight between Joanna Jacek and Michelle Watterson. Uh, this one going down at the Amelie Arena, the granddaddy of them all. Obviously, Joanna uh, Jacek, the former champion, is... Uh, in the midst of a little bit of, of career turmoil here, just one and three in her last four fights always feels like she's just a win or two away from getting right back in the title picture though. Michelle Watterson comes in on a streak, three fights in a row. What, what do you think about this one? And have you had any time at all to even consider UFC on ESPN plus 19? You know, as I was exiting the Marvel stadium, like to go into the back for the press conference, and I heard it over the public address for their visit. And like, don't miss next weekend where Cub Swanson and Crone Grace. And I was like, oh shit, really? That's next weekend? It does, it's times like this that I realized that we always talk about the oversaturation and the breakneck pace of the UFC schedule. That it makes it difficult to really look ahead too much because... You got a fight coming up every weekend. You got to just focus on that and you, you don't get a chance to let some of this stuff build or you spread out the talent too thin so that you have these cards that are kind of top heavy. And if you had fewer of them, you'd be able to load them up a little more. But it also occurs to me that it's also a problem in the other way that after you have a big fight, if you had nothing this weekend, you'd have a little bit more room for that to breathe. People would just spend all week talking about that fight. And just be able to sit with it a little while, let it settle into their memory banks, and instead we move right on to the next one. Like, just can't even catch a breath. I agree with you, and I think that it, like, it's a subtle thing, but I think that it un- really undermines the sport's ability to, like, make stars, almost. Because we're not going to say a word about Dan Hooker on this podcast, who beat Ally Quinta in the co-main event of UFC 243. We're not going to talk about Jorgen DeCastro, who knocked out Justin Taffa in the... Uh, pay-per-view curtain jerker with an amazing one-shot walk-off knockout. You know, we're not going to talk about Tai Tuivasa losing to Sergey Spivak uh, in another heavyweight fight. We're not going to talk about Jake Matthews. We're not going to talk much about Brad Riddell. If if there was nothing else going on, the media cycle would have no choice but to get a little bit deeper in some of the into some yeah. of those stories and some of those performances. And I think you would find 
that say a guy like Dan Hooker, for example, like his win over Ally Quinta would would take up more space in our collective consciousness. The next time Dan Hooker would fight, we would immediately remember his last performance. We would know what he gained in his victory over Ally Quinta. We would be looking around for future opponents. We would be trying to like plot out a linear career path for him from here. But as it stands, we're just done with it. We're just yeah. on to Yejechik versus Watterson, and that's it. Close the book on UFC 243, which no. from a UFC perspective is exactly what you want. Yeah. Because you're not yes. trying to – well, on well, the yeah, surface right. it is. You're not trying to sell tickets to UFC 243 anymore. That's in the past. Now you're trying to sell tickets and clicks and views and streams for UFC Fight Night 161, a.k.a. UFC on ESPN Plus 19. But I think when you do that, when you go that route – you lose everything that I just talked about with the uh, the potential fallout and like the uh, the gravitas in a way of UFC 243. Is it possible that also if you're the UFC, you're not worried about it because you're not so worried about building stars anymore? You are worried about churning out content. Yeah, they you become too big a stars and start making too much money, you lose them. Yeah. That's one thing we've seen over and over you're again. You're certainly not uh, all that concerned about the how much shine Dan Hooker gets. That's right. for sure. Yeah, and so you just and plus, I mean, imagine if you hadn't had this one coming up right away, if you'd have been able to add Yuan and Jechik versus Michelle Watterson to this card, the the main card at UFC 243, which was a little light, and which the Australian fans definitely noticed. I heard it from the same thing from Australians that we used to hear from Brazilians, where they'd say, "Yeah, hey, I like to see local fighters fight and everything," but then again, I get a chance to see them fight. Like the ones from the local scene who you hire just for this event, I've seen those guys before. I've seen them locally. I still I follow this sport. I want to see the people who matter in the sport, not just the Australians who you think matter in the sport. I think uh, you know you would have had some of the or Cub Swanson versus Chrome Gracie. I mean, people people would like that as a supporting fight on a main card pay per view. Right. Not only that, but you know, it's the week after Dominic Reyes versus Chris Weidman is coming up. So like we say this all the time, but if you took one or two events out of this like monthly grind UFC schedule, then you would have a UFC two forty pay three pay per view that had. Israel Adesanya versus Robert Whitaker, Ioana Jacek versus Michelle Watterson, Dominic Reyes versus Chris Weidman, Cub Swanson versus Crone Gracie. At which point you would be like, that's a blockbuster pay-per-view. And that's the kind of pay-per-view you don't really get anymore because of the schedule and because everybody's getting paid $300 million to do 42 events a year. Who do you like in this one? The Yuani and Jacek versus Michelle Watterson one. It seemed, it would seem to me like right off the top of my head that I'm, I would go hard for Yuani and Jacek here and think that it's definitely her fight to lose. Also though, she needs a win here. She definitely does. Uh, you know, Michelle Watterson is one of the nicest people in the sport and like a a pretty good interview. A, A person that I feel like is really easy to like. She's beat Carolina Kovalkiewicz and Felice Herrig and Courtney Casey right in a row here. Uh, but previous to that, a loss to Rose Namajunas and a loss to Tisha Torres. So Yoanna Jacek is probably a step up in competition here. It's weird how far removed at this point Yoanna Jacek feels from that 14 and 0 fighter yeah. who was just piecing up everybody. That was like a tiny, scary alien who used to just destroy everything in her path, uh, and, and seemed like she was on her way to being the most dominant female fighter of all time. Two losses to Rose Namajunas and this loss to Valentina Shevchenko uh, in a flyweight fight later. You're right. This does feel like an absolute must win for her, even though she's only 32 years old. 
Yeah, and the odds pretty heavily favor Joanna Janjacek. Looking at it, she's about a four to one favorite to win this one. Which, when I try to ask myself or try to picture paths to victory for Michelle Waterson, I don't know, take down to submission maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Well, you don't want to stand there and get in a. Uh, despite the fact that you are the karate hottie, you don't want to stand there and get into a a kickboxing match. I don't think with with Joanna Janjacek. You want to sweep the leg. Sweep the leg, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how Dana Gee, White scoffed? Yeah. When somebody asked him about Michelle Waterson as a, like a title contender. Oh, man. Well, also scoffed on the basis that she wasn't ranked high enough, which A, man, we all know those rankings don't matter when it comes to how you're booking these fights. And also B, we talked before about how crazy it is, how seriously both the UFC and the fighters take the media generated, and I'm doing the air quotes thing with my finger, rankings that most of the media do not participate in. Yeah. But, you know, we just talked about uh, the, the the oversaturation of all these events and how if you just had one pay-per-view card, you would have a monster on your hands. But in in truth, this, for an ESPN Plus event, this is not a bad card. Because you get no. Ioana, you get Jay Chicken and Michelle Waterson, you get Cub Swanson and Crone Gracie, Mackenzie Dern makes her return. Uh, there's a rhyme for you. You got your boy, Eric Anders. Your boy, Eric, your boy, Anders. Going up against... Uh, Gerald Mearshart, who is like the uh, the epitome of the of the crafty veteran. Uh, remember, he beat Trevin Giles back in August in that fight where I do not uh, remember. Gerald Mearshart. Oh, he choked him out and then put his legs up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's that. I guy. do remember. It turns out you got Nico Price on this thing. James Vick. Yeah, Nico Price versus James Vick is a fun little welterweight would watch fight. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff here that that you can dig into. It's just, again, such a, uh, a never-ending grind that it's hard to really even focus in on one particular card. Didn't Nico Price just fight? Is this all blending together? For you? He fought, he fought, he in, fought July, in July. The end of July at UFC 240. He's back. He back. That's quick. Can't keep a good man down. No, I guess not. All right, Ben. It was a crazy back-and-forth fight. And him and Jeff Neal beating the shit out of each other. Now he gets turned right back less than three months later. Back at it. Let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Jed, I'm sitting there at the UFC post-fight press conference, and Dana White's not at this one, so they bring back Lawrence Epstein, UFC COO, I believe, Lawrence Epstein. And it occurs to me that getting a crack at a UFC executive, we got to ask, and we should be asking every opportunity we get with a UFC executive, Frankly, at times I've been a little disappointed with my fellow media members for not asking when we have an opportunity. Hey, we just saw, thanks to this lawsuit, the UFC plan to keep fighter compensation at 20% of revenue for you, just the event revenue, I believe, so that they don't climb higher than 20%. So you're keeping 80%, giving them 20%, a far cry from the, you know, 50-50 splits in a bunch of other sports. How do you justify it? Do you think that's a fair point? And his response was that since the lawsuit is ongoing, the lawyers have told him not to talk about it. Lauren Sempstein, also a lawyer. That's right. And so I asked, does that mean when the lawsuit is over, we can talk about it? He says he has 20 to 30 minutes worth of stuff he'd love to tell me about it as soon as the lawyer's given him the, the okay. So I guess I'm just saying I really look forward to having that conversation. I got 20, 30 minutes. I'll make the time, man. 
I will make the time for that conversation. Tell me what works for you. I'll work around your schedule. Just let me know when it's time for us to have that conversation because you have a lot of stuff it seems like you you would like to say. I would really, really love to hear it. And I hope my my fellow reporters out there in the MMA media will continue asking that question of other UFC executives when the opportunity presents itself because that's kind of the question we need to be asking them right now. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week, my just saying stuff is more of a Max Holloway is just saying. Did you see this guy okay. went on Ariel Helwani's MMA show today and uh, talked about aggressively online Conor McGregor's continued call-outs of most everyone in the UFC. Yeah. Uh, Ariel asked him about it. Here's what Max Holloway said, and I think you will find this quintessential Max Holloway. When Conor beat Aldo in December 2015, and when he beat Eddie Alvarez in November 2016, for those 12 months, he ruled the world. The world, not just the UFC, the world. And the one thing I can remember and take away from that time was his focus. He was so focused. He decided what he wanted, and he said stuff. He pointed at this guy. He reached for the stars. He reached for the moon, and he made it happen. Magical. Listening to him now, I don't see that same focus. If you're going after everything, you're not focused on anything. He called out like 20 guys in that interview. So I guess I'm just saying, Max Holloway out here continuing to say what we're all thinking. Thank you, Max Holloway. Kind of nailed it. Once again, just being down to earth and straightforward and saying the stuff we're all thinking. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back tomorrow for the Wednesday live chat here on the Patreon and then back again Friday for the Power Hour. Uh, remember, the Patreon Movie Club is being postponed one week from tomorrow. We will be watching the movie Brick, so you have a little time to get caught up for that. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know the biggest cultural change I had to adjust to in Australia? All that change? Well, the change is not great, but when you're paying for stuff like in bars and cafes and stuff, everybody uses their phone to do the Apple Pay thing. Everything. Which wow. previously was a thing that I only accidentally revealed. My Like, my phone only accidentally ever figures out, like, it's trying to pay Apple Pay stuff. Yeah. Like, trying to open it. They all do it. Everybody's just, like, tapping their phone on the readers and moving on with their lives. Which is much better. It's a much better system. I take out a card and pay for stuff, like an actual physical card, and they look at me like, Jesus, what a pain. Old man, bolts out yeah. there with plastic. It was hard. Well, I would be lost. I would just be. Standing. I adjust it. You can adjust rather easily. I would be standing on a street corner in Melbourne, just slowly turn into a circle, just completely befuddled. But you do that here. That's true.